On November 30, 2016, the Institute of Mountain Research at Westminster College hosted a fireside chat with Peter Metcalf, the founder and former CEO of Black Diamond Equipment Company. At this fireside chat, Peter shared a personal story, related lessons learned from climbing to business, and shared how Black Diamond got started. He called this talk Alpinism, Entrepreneurship, and Environmentalism, and he discussed the play side of mountain life as well as the business side, perfectly encompassing the multidisciplinary focus of the IMR. This chat offers influential lessons and valuable information for anyone who seeks a lifestyle involving outdoors, mountains, or business. We recorded all of Peter's story, apart from a chunk that we missed because of a dead battery, and are sharing it as our second episode of the Mountain Story podcast. Here it is, Peter Metcalf's Mountain Story. So uh, I, I couldn't think of a better venue to be outside and be talking about, I think what I'll, I'll and label this talk is alpinism, entrepreneurship, and environmentalism. But it's uh, this kind of environment's forged who I am and what I'm about, so it's perfect. So thanks for being here on a chilly night. I think what I'll do is I'm going to talk for a while. Feel free to interrupt me, but my goal is not to make this sort of rhetorical. It's to make it pedagogical a lot of questions, and I think I'm better at answering questions than talking, but I'll give you sort of the background first. <clears throat> and if you can't hear me, tell me. I'll keep spinning around. <coughs> but maybe the place to begin is, if you're not familiar with Black Diamond, it is a company that is really, I, I think it's impossible to sort of decouple the history of the sport of climbing and mountaineering and off-key skiing from Black Diamond and vice versa. <clears throat> and likewise for myself, I don't think you can understand who I am without understanding me as a climber because my life's been forged by climbing. And I'll, I'll talk about that in a moment because it's all related, climbing, mountaineering, business, and then the environmentalism. But just as quick background for myself, as you maybe heard, I'm from New York City originally and <clears throat> just across the border on Long Island. And I got into the outdoors very early on in my life in part because um, one, my favorite TV shows were two TV shows, which maybe you've never heard of, called The Little Rascals. And um, I enjoyed reading Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn, but I thought Spanky and his gang, they were the most awesome people on the planet, and I wanted to emulate them. <clears throat> and so when I was a kid, there were still green belts along freeways, even on, in Queens and Brooklyn. Um, there was empty lots and places like that, and it was a time where you could just leave the house in the morning in the summer, and if you got home for dinner, your parents were happy. Um, and that's what I did. And I think that as I look back at it, um, to how I was raised for my parents, my parents both were refugees. One was born and raised in China, and the other one in Germany, and they came after the war. And for them, what I realized, <coughs> their life was from the moment they were a teenager till when they left where they were, life was an adventure every day. <clears throat> and I think what they instilled in me is the idea that, hey, adventure is pretty exciting. You live in a safe place. Go have it. And the advantage I had was when I got cold or was done with my adventure, I could come home. That was something they could not do. Um, so anyway, I got into that and really got into the outdoors early on. Got into Boy Scouts, which every kid my age did in mid-1960s America. And I was really fortunate that I had two troop leaders who really helped my 
education in the outdoors because they were, one had climbed, they had skied, backpacked, and so very early on, we were going off on adventures to backpack on the Appalachian Trail, ski in New England, um, go rock climbing in a place called the Shawangunks in upstate New York. And very early on, it all started to click for me in that I love the outdoors and climbing just captured my imagination. And I think the reason that it did, just for those of you who aren't climbers, just express this a moment is that climbing is the amalgamation of several different things. And it's number one, it's the move, it's the physicality, it's the gymnasticness, it's doing the moves. So that's one part of it. The other part of it is the place. It puts you in some of the most amazing places, especially to wake up on the diamond or in El Capitan at a beautiful bivouac and look down upon Yosemite Valley or the plains of Colorado and catch a sunrise. You just realize that there's something unique about this planet. It puts you in perspective with the world to be in these places. It's also about the adventure of being out. There's just something very exciting about having an adventure and being responsible for yourself. And it's about the collegiality, what I call the brotherhood or the sisterhood of the rope. It is rare that we do activities where we are working in partnership with one another and we're really amped for that other person to succeed and we're really excited to succeed ourselves, that we work together in a partnership, not in competition, but in collaboration. And I think all of those components of climbing uh, combined with a few other things is what really was so compelling to me. The other aspect of climbing, and this relates to business too, is that it puts you into situations or what I call situations of tremendous consequence where you understand that if you don't, if you're not careful, if you're not thoughtful, you can get in a lot of trouble and get really hurt. Um, and with that comes another interesting component, which is I call, it's the need for control and the need for abandonment. Because you're never gonna get up anything if you don't go for it, but you need to do it in the most thoughtful way possible. It teaches you a lot about preparation, about training, about thinking through what you're gonna do before you do it. But ultimately, you gotta go do it. You gotta cut loose and just go do it. Unfortunately, our hand recorder ran out of battery while he began to tell a story about a climbing adventure he'd been on with some friends on Mount Hunter's central rib of the South Face in Alaska. On this journey, he and his friends faced many unexpected hardships that taught them very valuable lessons. Our recording picks up at the end of the story when he shares those valuable lessons. Intellectually and emotionally, and actually physically, we were, had been investing the previous four days and trying to always figure out what you do in climbing is, how do we get down? How are we gonna get down? How are we gonna get down? And suddenly we found ourselves in day four absolutely committed that the only way to go was to continue to go up and get over this thing. And suddenly no energy was wasted on how are we gonna get down? Because we're only gonna go one way. That was sort of a, an emancipation sort of feeling at that moment in time. It was also very intimidating. The second thing we realized was, okay, we're already four days into this with six days worth of food and we have a really long way to go <clears throat> and the weather is absolutely terrible. Really, really cold, stormy. Typical days were around zero or 
below zero um, and pretty hard climbing. And what I realized at that point in time was after that last day that we had had was that we got to break this thing down into its components. And rather than think about how much more we have to do, we got to keep that in mind. But let's think about it in segments. We have photos of the route. What are we going to do each day? How are we going to do that? And that was really, really, I think, essential to success because if you allow the magnitude of the project to overwhelm you, you become paralyzed by it. But if you look at it each day, and what we were doing was saying, okay, look, what we climbed yesterday, what we went through and weather, the conditions we climbed and how we climbed together, that's amazing. And tomorrow can't be any worse than what we did today. And if we lived and got through this today, we can do it tomorrow. And that's how we got through it each day. Um, ultimately did the route and got down. And it took us 14 days, not six days, obviously went without food for a very long period of time. We all got frostbite and ended up in the hospital for quite some time. Um, but what I will say is, and then I want to tell you what the lessons were learned from that was, first thing is, I mean, it was really gratifying to me was, with a few days left as we crested the summit and were coming down, it was still pretty tough going, it was a long route. I remember at some point saying to one of the, my two partners, apologizing to them for bringing them here because it was not sure we were still going to get off. And just saying, yeah, I'm really sorry that I got you guys into this situation and brought you here. Um, and I you know, still felt like we we're going to get off, but I don't know. And they looked at me and just said, man, we'll come with you anywhere in the world. This is the best adventure of our lives. And I share that with you because these kind of adventures, whether it's starting a business, which I'll talk about in a minute, or being in the mountains with your colleagues, it pushes you to your utmost, but it really forges who you are as a person and forges the team together in an amazing um, sort of way. And so I, I guess I'll share on that route about that climb. My takeaways were some of the following. One is, it is amazing what you can really do when you set your mind to it. You can do a lot more than you thought was possible. And I would say that you know, anywhere on that route, had I had a sat phone, and there was some place where a helicopter could have landed had I had that and I could have said, hey, beam me up, Scotty, we're out of here. I probably would have done it. Um, but we wouldn't have had the experience that we had had. And it, it really made us who we are. Secondly, um, whether it's in climbing or in business, I think the th lesson I learned is, you know, it's, if you think about climbing, the best climbs you'll ever do, um, some of the best things you ever do in life, are those that really, really did take you to the limit. And you know, it's interesting, in climbing, what we as climbers, or there's a lot of skiers here, you as skiers look at and go, wow, look at that line. That's an awesome line to ski or to climb. I want to do that. You know, the average lay person will look at it and go, oh my god, that's dangerous. You could fall. You could get killed. I shouldn't do that. But we as outdoor people, if we're skiers or climbers or maybe big wave surfers, we look at something that everybody else goes, oh my God, and go, wow, wow, that's cool. And in business, as an entrepreneur, I learned it's the same sort of thing, that those moments of imminent danger or crises are really the opportunities to be your best. And I, the way I defined it at Black Diamond from the very beginning, I'll talk about that in a minute, is that 
Crises are opportunities in drag. And likewise in climbing, in mountaineering, in alpinism, the climbs that you're most proud of, that are the most exciting and most rewarding, are those that absolutely challenge you, took you to your limits, because they allow you to, to absolutely express your skills, your ability to creatively climb, to do things in a way that maybe others haven't done it. And that's what's so rewarding. And I was actually talking about this. We set up uh, about 15 years ago in Asia, in China, a subsidiary. We had a couple hundred people. But when we were hiring them, I was going over trying to instill in them the culture of the company and telling them the story. And one of the managers stopped me and said, hey, do you know what the Chinese symbol is for crisis? I said, no, I really don't. He said, it's a compound symbol. It's danger and it's opportunity. And I thought, that's brilliant, because that is, I think, the lesson I learned on Hunter and in starting Black Diamond is that those crises are really dangerous, but they're that, that amazing opportunity. So that was one really great takeaway. Another one is that you are only as strong as your weakest member, so that you, ha you have to have a team together, a team, and you need a leader, but ultimately you have to be very thoughtful about the well-being of your team because you're absolutely dependent on those other people, whether it's a three-person team or a two-person team or four. You're so dependent on them. And you have to be absolutely brutally honest with one another as to how you're feeling. Are you up to that lead? How are you feeling right now? Can you do that? And you need to have, it needs to be egoless to be able to tell your partners that I'm not up to that lead right now. I feel terrible. Can you take the lead? Can you do that? And have that open thing and not let ego or pride or wherever get in the way because that, that will be that will result in failure. You have to have absolute confidence in the competency of your partner. And everything I'm sharing with you, I learned that it's true in business too, right? If you're a lean team and don't have extra people, when somebody goes up on a lead wherever they're going, and then says, okay, I'll fly, come on up. If you're gonna climb up there, when you get there, you wanna make sure that there's some way to go up. The person is well anchored, and you're not at some place where you can't get off it, you can't move forward. So you always, you have to have that absolute confidence, confidence in the competency of your partner, um, or you're not gonna make it. That's pretty critical. Their well-being is absolutely, um, critical to you and your success, supporting one another. Um, and likewise, I think the, one, the other thing you really learn about in the mountains is that they teach you humility. And I think one thing everybody learns is that in the mountains, arrogance and hubristic behavior is rewarded by getting badly spanked or killed. And in business, what you learn is that arrogance and Hubristic behavior, usually, not always, is rewarded by bankruptcy or not doing very well. Really, really good lessons to um, learn from those activities. So that brings me now to um, Black Diamond. So the way, the way the Black Diamond got started was in 1982, I went to work after teach, working on rigs and teaching out with bound courses for a number of years. I decided I gotta try to move into some part of the industry and 
it's a little bit more sustainable, a little bit more rewarding. And in 1982, I went to work for a guy named Yvonne Chouinard, who was the founder of Patagonia, is still the owner um, and chairman of the company. Patagonia had just surpassed a whopping $1.5 million a year in revenue. And he had a little climbing equipment company called Chouinard Equipment that though it was very tiny, it was sub one million and it was 25 years old. Its footprint on how it changed the sports of climbing was much bigger than its revenue footprint. And he was looking for somebody to run that, um, who was a climber, had a lot of energy and could sort of um, <coughs> juice it up a bit the way he had done it for years, but he was very focused on the apparel and the clothing at this point in time. So I went to Ventura in 82 when the company was under a million and learned everything I know about business, really, from the Chouinards um, and a woman, Chris McDivitt, who was running Patagonia at the time. And between 1982 and 1988, was able to, thanks to the growth in climbing, the change, and then being able to hire people who had a lot of energy for the sport in the company, was able to grow it to about $5 million. And before I tell you what happened then, I'll say the following is that I learned, Yvonne, I should say, is a dear friend of mine, right, still today. So what I say is not at all negative, is that I think we learn from our mentors a lot from what they do right and what we as apprentices to them don't like about what they're doing as well. And what I saw with Yvonne when I got there was that here was somebody who was a pioneer climber who had really helped to change climbing and gear and equipment who kind of believed at this point in time, I was very fortunate to get the job to work with him, that the golden years of climbing were in the rearview mirror and that, you know, the good years were over and it was the pioneer days of the late 50s, 60s, and 1970, and now it was over and do the best you can. And for me, at that point in my life, in my 20s, was, hey, Yvonne, golden years out the windshield. The stuff that we're doing right now, the opportunities for the sport are this unbelievable and it was bringing that energy to it and it was the recognition that if you don't have that energy and you don't believe that the best years of you and your business or your activities are out the windshield you should retire or get somebody else to take over because you're not going to be a good leader and you're not going to inspire others to follow if you think the best years were in the past that was one and the other thing i realized was that when i got there I had some opportunity to climb with Yvonne, but he was rapidly getting out of climbing. And I asked him why, and he said to me, well, one, I don't have any friends who climb. And it brings me to another point I wanna make. And anymore, I'm here in Ventura, and you know, fighting the roads of California to get to the mountains. I got surfing here, surfing's great. You can surf kayak, there's other things to do here. And I realized then at that point in time that I wasn't gonna stay in Ventura all that long in my life because climbing and mountaineering the mountain sports were too important to me. And I realized as I watched him and spent a lot of time with him, God, environment really plays a huge part on you as a person and your business, what it becomes. It is very influenced by the environments you are in. Or two very good takeaways. So, and then I should say one more thing before I forget it about climbing. I, I talked to you earlier about, um, what climbing is comprised of in its core, the components of the move, the place, the people, and it's an adventure. When you're young, I can say for sure, it's the move, 
the place, the person. And as somebody who spent three months climbing the Yosemite and went out there from New York, hitchhiked out there and climbed with anybody I could find who was willing to climb with me, today I'd never do that because it's the reversal. It's the person, the place, the move that over time becomes more important to me. Um, and I think that's just something that changes with time. And I saw that with Yvonne too. So where did BD come from? So 1980s America, there was by the mid 80s and late 80s, what I like to call the revolution, what everybody calls that. It was a revolution in tort law. If you don't know what tort law is, it is the ability for a person to sue a company or a landowner um, basically if you get hurt using that product or being on their property. Um, so that was a big deal because products that Chinon Equipment had put out into the marketplace in the 1980s with very little warning language, very little instructional information because everybody who was climbing would learn how to use it. Um, was no longer adequate for the changing consumer base and the changing legal system. And it was a period of time where suddenly you had companies going out of business who were making playground equipment and bike helmets and football helmets and scuba gear because they were all suffering the same thing. They were being sued as people got hurt using their equipment. And I should say, I, I call this, and when I write the history of the outdoor industry, I call it the big bang that hit the outdoor industry. Because with that tort law, you had a couple of things that happened. First off, you're having equipment companies being sued for their equipment, not because it failed, but because of lack of instructional information, lack of warning language, things like this, and a little bit more, but I'm trying to simplify it. <laughs> Secondly, in the 1980s in the US, by 1988, if you were in Colorado, Utah, if you skied out of bounds out of a ski area, you would lose your ticket, you'd be fined $500, and you would spend one night in jail. So the whole idea of backcountry skiing and skiing out of bounds was out of the question um, for most people. So that was at risk. Because of litigation in tort law, land managers around the US, both private and public, state and federal, were closing areas to climbing and mountaineering out of fear of being litigated. And then thirdly, there was a new component to the sport of climbing. Climbing is a dynamic activity. It's always giving birth to new sub-disciplines. It was called sport climbing, which is what most people do around here. If you go to Big Cottonwood or anywhere, clipping bolts, that didn't even exist in 1985 in this country. Um, but as these bolts were, as, as that form of climbing began to take shape here, land managers didn't know if that was garbage or was not garbage. Was it a trail or was it like leaving a soda can on the rocks? And so the land managers were moving very quickly to ban bolting on the public lands, especially wilderness areas, proposed wilderness areas and the like. So you had all these things, forces coming all at once that were putting at risk um, the industry and more importantly, your privilege, I call it a privilege, not a right, to climb, to mountaineer, to off-piste ski as individuals. And between that and well, that was my concerns, but then between the litigation, the rising insurance costs, the fact that Chanel Equipment got hit by, uh, in rapid succession, half a dozen lawsuits, Yvonne decided to, in uh, late 88, to put the company into bankruptcy, Chapter 11 bankruptcy, because <clears throat> A, he didn't have, well, first and foremost, he was worried and concerned legitimately that a lawsuit could pierce what's called the corporate veil and attach itself to Patagonia. 
and potentially take Patagonia down. Secondly, he wasn't all that enthralled with the direction climbing was going at this point in time. Um, it was just very different than the kind of climbing he had done at his point in his life. So when he asked me to liquidate the assets of the company, I thought about it for a little bit and, and determined one, <clears throat> this company had played such an integral role in the history and development of global climbing and it was an American icon, that would be very tragic. Two, I just spent the previous almost seven years of my life rebuilding this company, hiring my friends to come work for the, for the company, bringing out new gear, making a difference. And it seemed like it would make a mockery of that. And thirdly, as somebody whose life had been forged by the mountains, by climbing, by mountaineering, and it meant so much to me and my tribe, my friends, my peers, I was really worried as to what would happen to my and my tribe's privilege to, to climb, to off-PC, to do these things if there wasn't someone, some organization, championing what's important to them. And at this point in time, this is 1980s, there was no outdoor industry association, there was no access fund, there was no winter wildlands, there was no IMBA. None of these groups existed at that point in time. User advocacy groups did not exist. So sort of an epiphany came, which was <clears throat> there was an, a need to start a company to make a difference on behalf of a community, to champion the issues of great importance for that community. And that's, if you've heard of the term of why, what's the why behind a business? The why behind starting Black Diamond was simply that, to make a difference for a fellow community of users. And then I said the, the way that we would go do that would be by, number one, fighting for and championing those issues of access, um, stewardship, your privilege to get out there and ski and climb. Two was to bring out innovative products. And three was to celebrate and affirm your decision to lead a certain lifestyle to be a climber, a mountaineer, or a skier um, at a time when there was no internet and there wasn't a lot of materials out there affirming that. It was to affirm that decision. So that was really the, the genesis behind starting the company. And then secondly, I realized, as I said a moment ago, Southern California, very great if you're a surfer. Um, and whatnot, but not very great to be a mountain person. I realized that if this company that I was starting with my peers was really going to realize what I wanted it to be, quote, one with the sports, it serves absolutely indistinguishable from it. I couldn't do that in Ventura. It had to be situated in place in an environment that lay on the asset side of the balance sheet that was accretive to that vision that would help it and not fight it. <clears throat> and so once I got the doors open, we, all employees, we engaged in a very systematic search of the West. I laid out the criteria that we're looking for relative to the business, what we wanted as people from climbing, ski, rock climbing, skiing, alpinism, ice climbing, and then what we needed as a business relative to the business infrastructure we needed. Did a very extensive year-long systematic survey of the West and slowly but surely narrowed it down to right in this area um, as the ideal place to put this mountain business. And this was before Amer was here or Rossignol or Quick or Petzl or anybody else who was here. So it was really actually a pretty gutsy decision because there was no outdoor company here. And I think the one thing you recognize 
is there is a Silicon Valley for a reason. There are concentrations of businesses for reasons because if you move a business to a place where there's no other businesses like it, it is in times challenging to get new employees to the place if professionals, because if they make this decision to relocate from Ventura or San Francisco or Richmond or wherever, and it doesn't work out, well, what am I gonna do if I have a family and kids? I gotta go back. If there's a, an ecosystem of companies in this arena, it makes it much easier to move around. And so it's like Malcolm Gadwell's book, The Tipping Point. And once you hit a certain tipping point, it's, it's much easier to get companies to co locate in a certain area. So anyway, at the time, it was a very bold move, but it was a great move because <clears throat> this environment with these mountains <clears throat> right above our, right here, you know, the granite of, and limestone and quartzite, and then the <laughs> desert to the south, the ice, the champagne powder, the Tetons to the north, it's just an amazing Mecca. And then we had a great business center and an airport and all that. So it really made a, uh, a it was gonna make a huge difference. And I have to say that arriving here uh, was catalytic to the business, the people we could hire. And upon getting here, initially I felt like having been raised around the Chouinards with Patagonia and their uh, environmentalism is that we too needed to not only be true to the reasons of founding the company, but be as active on those issues as possible. But there's always a moment in life where there's sort of the, um, you hit the crucible as to, are you gonna really be true to that or are you not? And for Black Diamond and for myself, it really came in the um, early 1990s, excuse me, more like 2000, sorry, when um, President Bush became president, um, George W. And what was going on in Utah at that point in time was there was a litigation going on in the state. I don't wanna to get too arcane here, but um, two things were going on from the Clinton administration with the state of Utah. There was litigation going on. The state of Utah was suing the federal government over the federal government managing BLM lands. They had a designation as to wilderness inventory areas that were being managed as wilderness protected for a sustainable future. Um, but it was not done by Congress the way WSAs are. So they didn't want to manage like that because they wanted to engage in um, oil and gas development on those lands. Secondly, as a way to stymie protection on a lot of the lands, the state of Utah was suing the federal government over what are called RS-2477 rights. That's an arcane Civil War era law that gives states and communities the rights to declare right-of-ways for roads over federal lands if they connect areas of commerce. I mean, they're important to commerce, et cetera and the state was using it to prevent areas from being protected. Because there was a new Secretary of Interior who was really pro-extractive industries, Secretary Norton, she and then Governor Levitt settled these things and it took away all the protections. So at that point in time, I came to the conclusion that that was very detrimental <laughs> to the industry. This outdoor industry after I got here with BD the next thing I did was worked on getting the outdoor retailer trade show. If you're familiar with the trade show that's here, that was in Reno, Nevada. 
And like a good born-again Christian, once you convert, you want to affirm your decision by, by basically converting as many others as you can to what you believe in. And in this regard, I wanted to get the trade show here because most people thought I was wacky moving an outdoor company to Utah um, at the time. So I figured, okay, we'll get the trade show here. People will come here. be a great way to highlight why we moved here. And ultimately, after a number of years that happened, the trade show was here, the trade show was growing. Other outdoor companies were moving into Utah, but the state didn't really recognize it. So I penned an op-ad op piece for the Tribune at the time and just said, though I'm really a fiscal conservative, I don't believe the government should intervene and um, help companies. At the same time, I don't believe the government should step in and hurt companies, especially in segments of the economy that are really, really accretive to the, <laughs> the success of the state, are growing, are sustainable, and are really, really important to the state. And I said, in this regard, the outdoor industry trade show should consider relocating out of Utah in protest to the actions of the governor. And basically that just was a bit like throwing a match down on a dry western forest on a Santa Ana day after no rain for 30 days. And it just really caught the imagination of the industry who rallied behind that and said, yeah, let's get the heck out of this city and out of this state. And it also gave an opportunity to really begin to talk about the role that outdoor recreation plays um, in America, West in particular, but in America all over, in driving forward economies, in really providing a fertile ground for one of the few industries that America still dominates on a global basis. I mean, the, the, our outdoor brands are some of the most glo truly global in the world. And I think that's in part because of our public lands and our ability to get out on those landscapes and be inspired and really uh, inspired to really innovate and bring out unique products. And then in addition to that, when you look at what tourism is doing, recreational tourism um, on the public lands, what it does for those towns is uh, very significant to their economies. And then last but not least, making the point that the areas like Salt Lake City for Boulder, Mount, the larger cities of the West, our great competitive advantage over the, co the coast is this access to outdoor recreation that we have. And a lot of the people who are here in Utah in the Wasatch Front um, and the companies that are here would not be here if it was not this access to mountain recreation. So not only is it recreation important in and of itself to these mountain town communities, they're critical to the cities that we have in the West, and it's why we're getting companies to relocate here. Um, so anyway, that's that protest and that effort really drove me very much into these areas on a much greater basis over the last 15 years, um, recognizing that it is one of the most important arguments that we can make legitimately um, in the debate over what do we do with our public landscapes? Uh, do we use them for extractive industries or do we use them for sustainable industries, which provide more long-term value to the country economically, let alone um, not talk even about uh, issues of climate change and things like that. So with that, I'm gonna stop now. I've been talking way too long.
We want to give a huge thanks to Peter Metcalf for giving up some of his time to come and talk to us. It's safe to say that we learned a lot from him and loved to hear what he had to say. We would also like to thank everyone who came to the Fireside Chat and everyone who took the time to listen to this podcast. You can look the Institute of Mountain Research up on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to get details on upcoming Fireside Chats, blogs, events, and podcast episodes. Thanks again for listening. We hope you tune in for our next episode as well. Thank you.